With prices soaring at the pump, filling up can be stressful. That's why Discover has your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn 5% cash back at gas stations and Target, now through June, on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with your Discover It card. Limitations apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards. The Exxon Radio Show is heard on radio broadcast affiliates worldwide, including AM 580 CFRA in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, WPUL AM 1590 in Daytona Beach, Florida, KOHI AM 1610 in St. Helens, Oregon, KHRO AM 1150 in El Paso, Texas. And for more information on becoming a professional broadcast affiliate of the Exxon Radio Show, visit www.xzbn.net or call toll-free worldwide 1-800-610-7035. The Exxon Radio and TV show is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the X-Zone radio and TV show or in any manner endorsed by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, Talkstar Radio Network, its affiliated stations, or employees. All Hit Radio To the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And we've been featuring some of the people who have so much to say, stories that touch your heart. This uh, these past couple of weeks, and you know what? Each and every one of these people have just been wonderful with their very own unique 
stories that other members of the media just pay no attention to. So to all the people who who were on the show last week and the week before and uh, for the balance of this week, I want to thank you very much for sharing your stories with us. I've had email from all over the world saying that you've made such a difference in the hearts of so many people. And isn't this what life is about? Sharing experiences, learning from one another, and where and when possible, helping one another. ExoNation, uh, if you'd like to give us a call, our toll-free number is 1-800-610-7035. My email address is exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. My first guest tonight, Exxon Nation, is Frida Wagman. And we're going to be talking about Frida's book entitled Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS Memoir. And uh, this is a really extraordinary book. Something very extraordinary about this book is that it tells the story of how one mother embarked on a feverish course of involvement in the AIDS community, in large part to help herself come to terms with the possibility of her son's death. But all the work really doesn't prepare her. She becomes incredibly intimate with a series of strangers, Yet she and her son have more and more trouble talking about his illness, which is the reason she is doing all of this in the first place. She becomes indispensable at the bedsides of countless other people, but when Gary is dying, she feels helpless, disconnected, and as if she'd never set foot in an AIDS hospital room. What is moving about this book, Exonation, is the fact that all this preparation doesn't prepare, because nothing can prepare her. Joining me now is Frida Wagman. She is the author of Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS Memoir. And Frida, welcome to the Exxon, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Frida, uh, what motivated you to get involved with AIDS? Uh, Was it because of your son, Gary? Yes, it was because of his diagnosis in early 1983. Mm -hmm. And it was a very new illness at the time, Nobody knew much about it then, but I knew I had to do something to get involved to help him and and the other people who were affected by it. All right, you and I have to take a little commercial break here. Frida, please do not go away. We'll be back on the other side in two minutes. Exxon Nation, Frida and I return here on the Exxon as we continue live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Once again, Frida Wegman is my special guest. We're talking about her book. It is entitled, all right, do you have your pencils and paper ready? Snippets from the trenches. A mother's, a mother's, oh my gosh, they cut it.
Frida Weichman is our special guest explanation, and uh, she is the author of a very, very special memoir. It's written uh, by her about her son Gary, and the name of the book is Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS Memoir. It's available online. And um, before we went to the commercial break, we were just uh, speaking briefly about about the book, and I, I have to ask you a question here. Were you ever afraid of the possibility of becoming infected with the AIDS virus yourself? No, I never was afraid because as volunteers with the AIDS Foundation, we were told of the risks, and even though it was in the very early days mm-hmm. and there was general panic and fear all around us, uh, the volunteers were given specific um uh, causes for, or, you know, reasons to become infected or or ways they could become infected. And none of those applied to me, at least at the time, because uh, normally it was, it was thought to be generally um, uh, acquired through sexual contact. Mm -hmm. And eventually they found out that it could be blood-borne. And so if I were to had needed a blood transfusion or something like that, I would have, you know, done whatever I needed to do to to be aware of, of any of that risk. But at the time, in helping the numbers, many, many numbers of people who had AIDS, I had no fear because uh, my reason for being there was went way beyond uh, that fear. And even the people who were infected that we cared for, they looked out for the volunteers perhaps more than we did for ourselves. Tell me, how did how did your son Gary feel about your involvement volunteering with people who had AIDS? He was very proud of it. Uh, he, he knew that I was doing everything in Houston that I could, and uh, he even brought me into his little community when I was out there visiting him because he had friends with AIDS, and he asked me to visit a mother of one young man who the mother had come from Tennessee to to be with her son in his dying days. And so Gary was very grateful that I spent time with her, and I don't know what she took away from it, but I know that Gary was proud of me for being involved in that. Now, um, tell me, was Gary forthcoming with his diagnosis? Very much so. He, he told me that he was going to have a biopsy, of a lymph node on his neck and then as soon as he got the results he called me and I was at work and I know that he was forthcoming because we were so close that it was our our common problem or mm-hmm. if you want to call it a problem but we were always very close and so to me it was a given that he shared that information with me unlike many other children who still to this day have not told their parents what was your relationship like with Gary prior to the diagnosis and then after the diagnosis? It was very close beforehand. We grew up together, sort of, because I was a single parent from mm-hmm. the time Gary was nine. I was uh, divorced when he was nine. And so we were very close, and we had a lot of common interests. And so, you know, we shared those, and being that he was an only child, I was able to spend more time with him and his school events and anything that he was interested in. So so we were close. And then after the diagnosis, of course, that the closeness didn't change, but of course our <laughs> one of the things that we had to talk about more often was his 
his diagnosis, but I, I refrain from saying illness because fortunately for many years he did not feel the effects, even though there were no drugs available at the time to treat it. So he considered himself a long-term survivor up until the last few months of his, of his life. And um, in that sense, we were close. And so we spent my vacation, well, his vacation times, I would take mine at the same time. And we traveled the world and places in California. So we did have a lot of quality time together. So our closeness didn't change. It, the um, dynamics of it changed a little bit, but, but it improved. In fact, he, he let me know that in some cards that he wrote to me. Tell me, how often did you see um, Gary, uh, Gary? I saw him once a year, if I was lucky, sometimes twice. And uh, during the times I was there, we really had uh, a lot of good times together. And he set aside his job. He was working full time. Mm -hmm. And he set aside, well, actually, he worked at the uh, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories at the University of California. He was a technical programmer for the uh, physics, well, what do you call that, the, um, oh, it escapes my mind right now, okay. but he, he did programming for, for the world physics community, mm -hmm. and so they closed the lab during the Christmas holidays, so he always had that week off, and that was usually when I spent time with him. Did you ever consider moving to San Francisco yourself? I did consider it. I had a full-time, long-standing job here which, of course, I needed to support myself, but I would have given it up if Gary had wanted me out in San Francisco. And he didn't feel that I should do that. He said, if, if I need you to come here, I will let you know. But he also, he kind of let me know in his kind and gentle way that, that I would actually be, and this is not a negative on his part or, or my response to it either, but that I would probably be more trouble for him to have out there because then he would be concerned about me and and my getting adjusted to the city and finding a job and and so it it took pressure off of him from having to be concerned about me but during the time that he he was living on his own and doing well he remodeled his house to install two bedrooms and a bathroom downstairs and to enclose the staircase because he only had one staircase for outdoors and he did all of this preparation in case I had to move there to take care of him. So he, he gave a lot of forethought to, to my uh, well-being, you know, during his illness. Sure. Tell me, why do you think the public at large reacted and still does react to people with AIDS the way that they did and the way that they still do? I think there's a lot of fear that still abounds, and I, it's probably due to lack of knowledge on their part. I don't want to use the word ignorance because it sounds like a negative word, but in fact it is ignorance in the sense that they're unaware of a lot of the facts that they should know. As far as the prejudice in the early days, it, I would say it was against AIDS, I mean against gay people mm -hmm. for the most part, because it was believed that they were the ones who contracted AIDS and spread it, and so there was a lot of hate going on in those days. And soon, um, when other people began to get infected with the virus, it was still the fear of people catching it from them without knowing how the virus was transmitted. So that's why there was so much um, hate mail and, and things like 
fires being set at the home of three hemophiliac boys in Florida, I believe it was, where their home was burned down because people were afraid and they were destroying all of the infection, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and it was a hardship on the family. And these poor children were hemophiliacs who got it through the blood supply. And Ryan White, who also, I believe, got it from, from a blood transfusion, and he was a young boy who now has major grants across the country named for him, I think because he and his mother were so active in the campaign to make people aware of AIDS and that it was not just a gay disease. You know, I I can remember when the news of AIDS first came out and the public terror, the public uproar, the the um, the bashing of of the gay community that was going on, the hate that was going on. And you know what? You look over the span of many years and not very much has changed. That's pretty true. There's still a lot of gay bashing and a lot of it is focused, I think, more into political agendas. And, of course, I'm not going to go into politics, and I only know what I hear and what my impressions are of it, but I don't have facts and you know that I could spout out, and, and I don't even want mm-hmm. to pretend to. But a lot of that comes from, I think, a, um, the agenda that has to do with morality and people who choose to measure morality in their ways, whether it's religious or political, that's their business. But it's very, it's very difficult for the communities that they're directing it to, to rise above it and get their word out. And that's why I think the AIDS community is working so hard and the gay community, which has really changed the face of the gay community. I mean, they, the whole, I've seen it over the 20 years, how mm-hmm. they themselves have gotten involved in so many worthwhile endeavors because they know they're, they're fighting an uphill battle. And I'm not sure what the, what the communities, such as the black communities and um, other minority groups, how their own communities react to, to AIDS in their world. But, um, you know, whether it's still a prejudice against people with AIDS or whether it's focused more still on the gays because mm-hmm. so many people are anti-gay for other reasons. And, um, you know, if it's the Bible and people believe in the Bible verbatim, then I'm not going to argue with them. It's just that it's still a big issue. There are people that come to my support group who are newly infected, which really upsets me because I sort of want to slap them and say, what's wrong with you? You know, haven't you been educated? But that's not our place to do. It's to welcome them and give them support. You and I have to take a commercial break. Please stand by. When we come back, I'd like to continue talking about your support group and the help that you give others. Please stand by, Frida. Frida Wegman is our special guest, Exxon Nation. She is the author of Snippets from the Trenches. A Mother's AIDS Memoir. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as the Exxon continues from the studios of Ralmar McConnell Media Company in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Once again, our worldwide toll-free number, 1-800-610-7035. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, exxonradiotv at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. My name is Rob McConnell. We'll be back after the news. Don't go away. Oh, yeah. 
Hi, this is Ken Elliott. When I'm floating around the universe, I always try to tune in to Rob McConnell. Hi, hold there, Trinity Frog on Sesame Street. When I want to find out what's going on with UFOs or ghosts, I listen to the X-Zone with Rob McConnell. This is Les Corrigan from Target Internet Development. You're listening to Rob McConnell on the X-Zone Radio Show. This is John Hogue, Prophecy Scholar, and you're listening to Rob McConnell in the X-Zone. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. So Nation, Frida Wagman is my special guest this hour. She is the author of Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS memoir. And here's how you can get a copy, just by sending uh, Frida an email. Her email address is frida.wagman at sbcglobal.net. And I'm going to spell that for you. F-R-E-D-A dot W-A-G-M-A-N at sbcglobal.net. Net. So that's Frida.Wagman at sbcglobal.net. The name of the book is Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS Memoir. Before we went to the news break at the bottom of the hour, we were talking about your support groups. Tell me more about that. The support group I belong to now is, um, it takes place in a church building, but it's a non-sectarian group. The church itself offers the space for mm-hmm. the AIDS community to gather there and share their concerns with people who are infected or affected, which means families, friends, anybody who, who is concerned about AIDS. And we meet every Wednesday night with a potluck supper, and then we have a short topic presentation by one of the group members or an outside speaker, very informal. And then we break out into smaller groups to either discuss the topic or for anybody to speak about what might be on their mind that week. And uh, so it's been in operation now since 1986, and the church itself also um, has a daycare for people with, what do they call it? Yeah, it's a daycare center for people with AIDS. And so they have something to do. The people who aren't working or don't have some place to go during the day, it offers social support and encourages them to explore their artistic uh, abilities or whatever. It's a a gathering place, and they get a a good meal while they're there. And as a matter of fact, this is just an aside, but last summer they invited me to speak to their book club, and they purchased, a few people purchased books, and most couldn't afford it, so I gave them copies so they could read the book as a group, and then they invited me to join them afterwards to discuss it. And I was so... I couldn't believe it when I walked in the room. They all stood up and applauded, and I've never had that sort of reception. But the book was well-received, even though all these people, I guess, related to their own fate because the book gives the stories of countless people who I've worked with who died. But they they kind of welcomed that. 
And in addition to the daycare center and the support group, the church also has a free dental clinic on campus. And it's not really the church. They have this community service network that's under the umbrella of the church. Part of their budget goes to it. So they've been involved in it for for many years, since the beginning, actually, of the AIDS situation. And I think the reason being that the church membership is predominantly gay. And one of the reasons for that is that most churches don't accept them. In fact, they've been kicked out of their their church of origin. So that's a, that's something about that support group that I enjoy going to, and uh, I've made many, many friends. And at one point, the church remodeled the building in order to install an elevator because they didn't have one before, and they had all of these very ill people. And the elevator size was determined by the size of the casket, which is rather morbid, but it was necessary because the uh, chapel was on the second level, and they had to have a way to get the caskets up there because they were having funerals sometimes five and six a week. Wow. And so that's um, that's a lot about that church. And as I say, the, the AIDS support network is strictly nonsectarian. And, um, in fact, it's a, a reconciling church, and they they welcome anybody. And I'm not a member, and I don't plan to become a member, but I'm welcome there as, you know, as anybody else is. You see, that's what I call a real church. That welcomes anyone. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, I'm not even a Christian. And um, But you are a human. Exactly, and I exactly, and that's why they welcome anybody. And we have all races, religions, sure. and and you name it. it. We are the face of America. I guess it's a it's a very wide cross section. I, I'll uh, even go one step further than that. You're the face of the world. Oh well, yes, I guess we are. You see, and and I believe, and this is just my own little sidebar that one of the major problems in the world today is that there are so many little cliques and groups that form. But I love this this concept when a church says, we welcome all. Yes. And that yes. just means we, we, we are willing to accept and to respect you, your rights, your beliefs, but we will welcome you. And I think that there needs to be more of this in the world. I, I agree with you totally. It's a very unusual church. In fact, um, I won't tell you the denomination, but but this denomination will not have a gay pastor in it. But every pastor they've had mm-hmm. since all of this began were people that I'm sure they chose because they knew they would be appropriate for the job in a church that's predominantly attended by gay people. And it could not have been just chance that it worked out that way, because the pastors are all, you know, how could sure. how could they do their job, and how could the members go to a place where the pastor didn't want them? <laughs> it just it wouldn't work. So at least the head office, wherever they are, you know, they be they're sure, sure to send pastors that that are good for the job. I'm probably going to get I'm probably going to get shot for this one. You know, I'm I'm just playing the uh, trigger to shoot my foot off with this one. Oh, no. <laughs> but I, I have to say I have to say that if there is a pastor who does not welcome anyone into his church or her church, they're in the wrong business. Well, I agree. They have that. no right. They have no right standing at the front of the church. That's true. 
Although I will say this, that over time there have been other churches who didn't want any part of this, mm-hmm. and they have become involved in, in large ways in the AIDS um, crisis, and synagogues also, and I don't know about mosque or, or you know, the Muslim yes. community, mm-hmm. but um, I know that there's a lot of, of churches and synagogues in Houston that they're involved to a large extent, and uh, but this one is one that's hands-on every single day. They also do something else. They, it's an area, it's generally a gay neighborhood where, mm-hmm. where the church is located, and they have a lot of street kids. And I don't know if they're gay or not gay, but they're runaways and, and they're on drugs, and they're generally kids who obviously didn't have the family either that supported them or for whatever reason they're on the street. And the church provides a meal for them every Sunday, or Saturday night, I think it is. And I don't know if they have games or what. And I asked them, the people that make the dinners, I mean, these are just volunteers, people I know who are church members, and they're pseudo-members of our support group, but they don't need to be there if they don't want to. You know, they mm-hmm. do other things. But they prepare the meals, and I asked them if during that Saturday night, if they try to proselytize and involve these kids in in uh, religion or how to get off the street or whatever, and they said no. We, in the beginning, they didn't do that. They wanted them to know that it was safe for them to come, right. and that was it. And I think after that, they started maybe throwing in a little bit of things, and there have actually been people that I've seen. I don't know them personally, but I have seen them come and say, this place has meant so much to me because now I'm putting my life together. And if they reach one person, it was worth doing. You know the old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Yes, that's a wonderful saying. Tell so, me, uh, I have to ask you at this point, um, yes. what do you think uh, Gary would feel about you having written a book about him and his illness? I think he would have been very proud of the fact that I did it mm-hmm. because I don't know if he ever knew I could do it. In fact, I didn't know I could do it, but um, it's a dichotomy because he would have been very proud, but at the same time, I, well, this is my dichotomy. I wish there was never a reason for having had to write the book. So, you know, he, (laughs) I couldn't say to him, I'm going to write a book about you and and your Mm -hmm. illness and your death because we didn't know it was coming. And so I think he would be proud after the fact but I just don't like the reason for having written it, if that makes sense. It, it, it does, and you know what? I, I can understand that, and you said it with all the love and tenderness uh, of uh, that a mother could. Yeah, well, that's the way I felt about it. In fact, last night at our support group, the topic was survivor guilt, mm-hmm. and we discussed it for a long time in the small groups, and they got around to me and said, Frida, do you have anything to say about survivor guilt? And I said, yes tons and i'd rather not even go into it and of course then i went into it but um it's it's just not a matter of the survivor guilt because i can't help it if i survive you know i'm still alive but the regrets anybody that's lost anybody has regrets and of course i have it with my own son and i've lost five siblings and of course my parents at this stage in life but but I've lost hundreds of people that I knew, my fellow volunteers and the people I got close to over all the years in the field, literally hands-on watching people die and looking horrible when they died. 
now they're still dying, but they don't look as bad as if that makes any difference. But uh, we're still losing people in our group, and even though there's a lot of medicine out there to help them. but um, so, so let me ask you, how do you deal with this ongoing grief that, that, you're, that you're subjected to? And, you know, I, I, I admire you for what you're doing, but I, my heart also goes out to you. Thank you for saying that. The way I deal with it, I have to be honest with you, is that losing Gary is a daily painful experience. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't stand it that he's gone. But I feel that I have put around myself this plastic bubble as a protective device because I have a feeling that if that bubble burst, I'll splatter all over the ceiling because I... I feel like I can't take it anymore, and yet it it gives me a feeling about death. I know it's a part of life, but there's also the human element. Um, You know, everybody has to die sometime, but the process of the way this has been played out, especially, well, I don't know if I should say especially, but to see so many young people cut down in the prime of their life is, it just really pains me, and I... I'm constantly pained with it. I go to a therapist every week, and he's a gay man who understands where I'm coming from. And I would say he's my best friend because he's the person I can tell anything to. And, you know, if I talk to other people, they say nobody wants to listen to a person that's negative. So I have to put on a smiley face most of the time and just not talk about it. So I deal with it. I, d- I just say I'm still breathing. That's how you know I'm alive, mm-hmm. and that's about it. And I do the best I can and say I've done the best I can, and I just have to go day to day. And I guess that's about how I deal with it. And yet here you are. You've won it. You, you have written a, a, a book to help others. You volunteer still. You work uh, with, the, with the church group. My heavens, you, you're, still, you're certainly doing a lot to... To, to help those who at that very time need your help and your wisdom. So once again, my hat is off to you. What is, the, you. What is the most crucial or what is the most devastating part when a family finds out that their loved ones has AIDS? Is it the fact that they've just learned that they're going to be losing their loved one? Or is it the fact that there's nothing that can be done about it? Or is it both? It's both. It really is both. At the time that Gary was diagnosed, my first reaction was, he's going to die. Mm-hmm. And yet at the time, I, I don't even know where I got that from, except I guess the other people I had heard about, the few people, did die. But, um, but that was my immediate reaction, and yet I, I thought, I've got to get involved to keep Gary from dying. However much time he has left, then uh, we have time to fix it before he dies. Well, obviously that didn't happen, and and the medical people were saying, in five years we'll have this beat. Well, they've said it in five-year increments yes. ever since, and they have done a lot to come up with, with better medicines that kept people healthier longer, and um, it didn't have as many bad side effects. But Gary died before those came out, so he was just lucky to have lived that time, you know, without the meds that that had become available after that. But when many families, you ask how they react, many of them, and I mean many people, toss their children out. Oh, really? And they also, many, many find out that they 
are gay at the time they say they have AIDS. So that's a double reason to throw them out. I mean, we've had people, in one case in the book I pointed out where one of our volunteer attorneys called the father of a young man who had died and asked, what do you want us to do with his body? And the father said, put it in a garbage bag out by the curb. And that was not uncommon. Listen, you and I have got to take a commercial break on that note. Uh, That is just, that is just wrong. That is just cruel. It is. It goes on. Frida, please stand by. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this hour. Exonation, our special guest is Frida Wagman. If you'd like to get a copy of Snippets from the Trenches, a Mother's AIDS memoir, send her an email, frida.wagman at sbcglobal.net. That's sbcglobal.net. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break. Don't go away. Nation, our special guest this hour is Frida Wegman, and she's the author of Snippets from the Trenches of Mother's AIDS Memoir. By the way, Exonation has won the Silver Medallion at the Book Expo in 2008. If you'd like to get a copy of this book, here's how you do it. You go to, you send Frida an email. Her email address is frida.wagman, and that's F-R-E-D-A dot W-A-G-M-A-N at sbcglobal.net that's frida.wagman at sbcglobal.net first of all frida thank you very much for joining us tonight it's been a great pleasure having you congratulations on the winning of the silver medallion and you know my hat is off to you and for all the great work that you're still doing so god bless you my dear thank you very much before we go, um, I, I have to ask you this question. Did you ever think about how different your lives would have been if Gary had not been gay? Yes, I thought about it, and I'm glad he was gay. I prefer it the way it was. I, I would not have had it any other way. What would you like to tell the members of the Exo Nation listening to you right now all, al- all across this beautiful world of ours? I would like people to know that there is still a lot of room for their compassion, their understanding, and their appreciation for what people are doing around the world. Uh, I shouldn't be promoting one particular group, but there, there is AMFAR, who is a worldwide organization um, headquartered in New York, who has been on the forefront of obtaining grants through donations. For, and like I say, I'm not promoting them. I'm just mentioning it because they are constantly coming up with the new medicines and treatments for AIDS. And um, 
I'm not saying to donate to them, but there are groups all over the world. And the point is that AIDS is still marching on. People need uh, to give their support, if not monetarily. I'm not here to, I'm not on a fundraising mission at all, so don't misunderstand that. We understand that. But please understand the fact that, that people who are infected with AIDS have gotten it for a variety of reasons. They're not bad people. They, you know, mm-hmm. we make no judgments about the kind of people they are. But, but I just hope that people will be more compassionate and understanding and accepting of people with AIDS and the fight against AIDS. So someday maybe we will have a cure or a vaccine to prevent it. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with saying that if you do have extra money, exonation in these very in these very tight times, and you do want to make a donation to any of the AIDS organizations, go online, find an organization that works for you, that you feel comfortable with, and make a donation. You're helping people. That's what this world is about. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I did want to mention that a portion of the proceeds of this book is going to AIDS organizations because I didn't write the book to make money or to have my next meal as a result of the income. The income has not been that much, and I, I think, and I'm not patting myself on the back, but I believe that I've donated more money to charities than I've taken in simply because I believe in it. Rita, and, we have just run out of time. I'm sorry okay. about that, my dear. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Congratulations on your book, and once again, thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my great pleasure. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Hello. Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it Cashback Match. Now to recap and say cashback one more time. We match all the cashback you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply.